Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Old Time Rock and Roll. Tonight is one of the more unusual shows that we have done. It includes an interview and some rather strange goings-on, not the kind of stuff that we usually try and keep up here at Old Time Rock and Roll. The song you just heard is probably one of the most well-known songs in rock and roll history. And you might call the singer Bobby Fuller and the Bobby Fuller Four one-hit wonders. In reality, he was not a one-hit wonder. Because very soon after this song became a huge hit, Bobby Fuller was dead. Tonight, we're going to present to you the whole story. What they say, the rest of the story, we're going to go in depth with somebody who has researched this topic and has actually written a book on it. In addition, we have 
recordings of people who were actually there and involved and parts of a documentary that was made several years ago. So tonight you are going to learn the rest of the story of Bobby Fuller. So within the interview tonight, we are going to be playing some very well-known songs and some songs that you may not have heard again, all having to do with Bobby Fuller, his life, and times. And since Bobby Fuller died at a very young age, which you'll hear about tonight, you will begin to understand why there's so much mystery surrounding his death. So tonight, he fought the law. Nobody won. On the line from Australia, I'd like to present Stephen McParland. Hi. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Uh, this is really uh, very exciting for me. I was just starting to tell my listeners. Uh, first of all, I have a great admiration for your, for the uh, Australian accent in its first place. I love it. And oh, secondly, <laughs> And secondly, I have been a frustrated writer all my life. I have no, I have great words. I, I can write anything, but I have no ability to stick with something and write a book. And my goodness, you have written how many? Uh, can you count? I'm close to 30 now. Gee, my goodness. Uh, you know, I have a friend here in the, in, in the States, in Texas, by the name of Ryan Vandergriff, and he has, he is writing three books on three days, and that is the uh, the days before and leading up to the uh, demise of, of Richie Valens and the Big Bopper and uh, uh, Buddy Holly, and three books on three days. I mean, it's incredible how anybody can write so much on something so short a time, but uh, I mean, I have such great respect for writers because I can't do it. Well, it's, it's, it's a, there's a lot of dedication and a, a lot of time-consuming effort, I guess. That's that's the main thing. But you're really going to be obsessed, I guess is the correct word to do it, especially when you're not writing for a, a publishing company. Um, I publish my own thing, so you've, you've got to have some sort of uh, reason to do it other than the money because there's no money in it. And uh, well, there's not much money in it if you're going with a publishing company. But um, you've you've got to be obsessive to do it, and you've got to love the subject. And unfortunately for me, I can only write about things that I'm actually interested in. I, if somebody said, oh, "Would you write a book on the Who or the Beatles or, or the Rolling Stones?" I would have to decline because I'm not interested in those three groups. And and it, it, I, I couldn't. I just couldn't motivate myself to to put pen to paper for those sort of topics and it's got to be a topic I, that I'm interested in as as yeah, obscure I, as it may be I, I I'm very big on obscure so but uh it's amazing that you you know from being in Australia and yet you have written a great number of books on American artists uh namely one for the Beach Boys I know uh, you've written a couple yeah, haven't you three or four books for the Beach Boys and, and you can't get a regular publisher to do that. I'm, no, no, no one's interested. No, I've, I've tried. I've, I went to New York when, when I was much younger and 
did the rounds of all the publishing companies and got a couple of bites, but nothing ever happened. And uh, hmm. I just basically gave up and, and, and did it myself. I've only ever had one book published by a publisher that was with uh, um, a company that's now, yeah, that's now longer, that, that, that is now defunct. Uh, that was a book on um, Hot Rod Music, which I co-authored with uh, John Blair, a Californian. But everything else I've done myself, and um, that's, uh, the, the, the trouble of doing it yourself, especially from a, a foreign country like Australia, where all my, uh, uh, where most of my people who buy my books uh, are either American or European, and it's, it's the postage costs, and, and it just makes the cost of the books prohibitive, and because no book, you know, no, no bookstores, you know, want to stock them, um, because you know they just. Yeah, either they don't know about the book, or if they do, they don't. You know, they want too much money, and I can't give them the book at a price that they can make any money from. So, it really, it's just a mail order business for me. Is but that's the only way I can I can do what I do. Um, and, yeah, I, I've, I've been gonna, doing it for now thirty years, I think. Hmm. I can I throw something out here. I'm sure you thought of it because I'm not that bright. But uh, would not an Amazon uh, ebook type of thing? work out for you? Could, would they not come up with something like that? Uh, I've investigated those sort of things, and they, they just don't um, seem to be... Um, the formats are the problem, because some of my earlier books were done on an archaic computer system, so they're not on Word. They're on what they was called Word Perfect 5.1. I know. So they'd have to yeah. be transferred over and redone and all that. Um, because a lot of my books now have, have gone out of print and because um, it's expensive to reprint them and, of course, as I said, with the postage rates, it makes them prohibitive for people to buy them, I've decided to convert all the books to at least a PDF, a PDF file and I'm yeah. considering selling the books as a PDF file, you know, in a proper little packaging sort of thing. So that way I they can look at it on their um, e-books and that. Yeah. I think that would be absolutely fabulous. <laughs> I myself... Uh, uh, would be interested, <laughs> and I'll tell you, and and I'll tell you how to tell the uh, story about why this call is even taking place. Somehow, I, I, you know, I, I have a, a great what you do with um, th- these particular books and and things that you write, and I know you're interested in surf music. I have done yep. with 1950s rock and roll. That's our basic although I do 50s and 60s on my show, uh, mostly I love to do the 50s, and I actually will go back as far as into the 1920s to show that there was music like rock and roll even back then. But somehow, searching for a song that I didn't have, I came upon a, I guess it was a YouTube ad of some kind for... Bobby Fuller. Now, Bobby Fuller has, the fa- the whole story about Bobby has fascinated me for as many years as I can remember. And when I heard that you wrote a book, I said, this is the man I have to talk to. Because every time I play a Bobby Fuller song, and I can honestly say I have I probably everything that he did, and I have to say that the story, I, I always give that pref, preface of him being found dead in his car and, and the whole thing, but I knew nothing more. And so I'm going to come now to the 
the man who knows the most. Could you please give us a background of Bobby Fuller and what happened to him? And please take as long as you want, because this is fascinating to me. Uh, well, background, I guess the background starts in El Paso, when, and that's that's was his hometown. And um, he went to school there, of course, and made all his friends there. Uh, he wasn't born there. I think he was born, from memory, he was born in Baytown, um, still in Texas. He, he was always mm-hmm. a Texan. Yeah. Um, and anyway, they moved to um, El Paso at some point in time, and um, that's where his music uh, career started. And uh, he was rather prolific. Not only as a as a like he was gifted in a way. He was a great songwriter, a very good singer. Taught himself guitar, became a great guitarist. But he also set up his own recording studio. So I guess in a way, he's a little bit like me. He said, yeah, he couldn't get people interested in his own recordings. So he he set up his own recording studio and and did his own recordings. And and then he set up his own record label. He had actually had two record labels, um, Eastwood was one of them, and um, he, he released his singles on his own labels. He did have a couple of singles on, on um, the, a couple of other labels, but um, m- most of his products, certainly from 60, 62, 63, and before he went to Los Angeles in 64, was all on his own labels. Um, now, this was before the Bobby Fuller 4, correct? Yeah, he's... He, he, the Bobby Fuller 4 didn't actually come into being as, as Bobby Fuller 4 until he went to Los Angeles. Prior right. to that, it was always basically Bobby Fuller and band. Um, they had other names. They had a few other names floating around. But, but uh, the, the thing that always amuses me with the whole Bobby Fuller scenario is that the, some of the group members have complained about the fact that it was always Bobby Fuller. The Bobby Fuller 4 was Bobby Fuller and... But, Everybody knew that. I mean, you knew that if you joined the Bobby Fuller band, it was Bobby was the guy. I mean, he was he was the be all end all. I mean, you weren't you weren't joining the band because Bobby Fuller wasn't in it. I mean, you were joining it knowing the fact that he's the leader, he's 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 the producer, he's the arranger, he's the, he's the songwriter, he's the lead singer, and in most cases the lead guitarist. So you can't come back and say, well, gee, you know, well the band's named after him. I I feel hard done by, but. Some of the some of the past group members have have actually said that, but but nonetheless, the 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 whole the whole concept of the band was always Bobby up front, Bobby providing the songs, Bobby doing everything else. So it was Bobby Fuller, it was Bobby Fuller and band, and Bobby Fuller Four. So that makes sense. The, the Bobby Fuller Four was a name that was conceived in Los Angeles, apparently by a fan. Um, although there is some dispute about that as well. I think one of the I think uh, the drummer says that he might have thought of it, but. Um, Nonetheless, uh, it, it does have a bit of a ring to it, like a jazz quartet, you know, Bobby Fuller 4. But, but right. um, once again, yeah, there was four guys in the band and, and Bobby Fuller, so it made sense to be called Bobby Fuller 4. Although their first single in Los Angeles was not as the Bobby Fuller 4, it was as the Shindigs, um, which was a name conjured up by uh, their new record label um, owner, uh, the, their boss, their manager, their be-all, end-all, uh, Bob Keen, who was... Also, um, as you well know, and your listeners well know, was the the brains in a way behind the whole um, Richie Valens thing. You know, he was the guy that did all that. So.
but that was Delphi at the time. Delphi had gone had gone against the wall financially. Um, that would be after the death of Richie Valens. Bob, uh, Bob Keane had had invested with another partner to form another company called Stereo Fi, and that Stereo Fi label, one of the la- one of the first label, was Mustang, um, which Bob Keane has on occasion. Bob Keane is now dead, but he has on occasion when he was alive, obviously, said that he, he formed the group, the, the group uh, he formed the label, the, the concept of the label, the name was, was formed directly for the Bobby Fuller Four, which of course is not, cannot, is not true, because the very first, if that was the case, the first release on, on uh, Mustang was, was by um, a duo, it wasn't, by, um, it wasn't by Bobby Fuller, he was the second or third single, and, and it wasn't, the third, the third single was the Bobby Fuller Four, so the second single was the Shindigs, and the first single was Carol Carol Connors, uh, Carol and Cheryl. It was a it was a skateboarding song. So the whole concept of Mustang being named because of the Bobby Fuller Four or, or the Bobby Fuller Four's label is not is to me erroneous. That's something that Bob Keane, I think, is in hindsight sort of conjured up later on. Um, the Mustang concept was around at the time. The car had just come out. April what April seventeenth was Mustang Day, nineteen sixty four. Um, you know the whole the euphoria of Mustang was floating around. There was a new, I think there was a new DJ turntable that came out called Mustang. There was already another label called Mustang. Um, so I think, you know, the only the only connection that I could find with with the Bobby Fuller Four, and I don't even think Bob Keane knew this, was that the Mustangs was the yeah you know, yeah was the school um, mascot the, right. you know, of Burgess High. You know, the Mustang was the was the was the mascot of Burgess High. So, yeah, Bob Bob. Uh, Keen may well have known that, but I doubt it. He was, I don't think he was that sort of involved in the group to that extent where he knew everything they ever did. I think he was more of a... He was first and foremost a businessman. Um, and um, once we get into the, the whole Mustang story, that's, I mean, that's another whole kettle of fish, you know. But, mm-hmm. um, but Bobby was by far the person who was, who was leading the, the charge in the band. He was the be-all, end-all. He was the guy that did everything. He was the good-looking. He was the best-looking of the bunch, too. You've got to... The girls knew that. Um, he was very energetic on stage. He, the, the girls just loved him. Um, there's a bit of a dichotomy there. Um, he seems to have been, because obviously I never met him, um, but people I've interviewed, he seems to like there was two sides to him. There was that once he got on stage, he was a completely different person to what he was normally when you were with him. He was a bit more subdued in a in a sort of person to person situation. Um, I even proposed to a couple of people that he may have been suffering from a slight, a very slight case of Asperger's. That's sort of some of the things that have happened, and and that you know could yeah, that could explain some of the things. But of course, that's never been proven, and they wouldn't have known what that was back in those days anyway. You know, so right. He was above all a showman. Sorry, right. I said Buddy Holly was that way. He was a very. Uh, he, Loud on stage, but he was very, very quiet in the back. That's true. Very yeah, nice. Yeah, that's so, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah, it's very. Yeah, and and of course, Buddy Holly was um, was Bobby's idol. Um, I mean, I think I've got a comment from Jim Reese or something that you know, Bobby was so enamored by um, Buddy that if uh, he, if he knew that Buddy wore one blue sock and one red sock, so would Bobby. <laughs> that's pretty much how um, how much he is into it. And um, I mean, it was also. The Buddy Holly thing was always a problem, from what I can understand, with his new manager, producer, um, 
Not that he needed a producer, but of course in Hollywood you had to have a producer. Um, right. Bob Keane, um, because Bob Keane sort of didn't didn't like Bobby's preoccupation with the Holly sound. Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Heartbeat, why does a love kiss stay in my memory? Little Pat, I know that new love thrills me. I know that true love will be heartbeat. Why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Oh, 
Once again, I think Bob Keane didn't read the right thing into it. Um, I think Bobby wasn't trying to emulate Buddy Holly. I think he was using Buddy Holly as like as a um, someone to look up to and and to sort of try and create that style of sound. Because I mean, that's a Texas sound. I mean, Bobby was a Texan, very proud of it. As were all the other group members. I mean, the thing that really drew me to Bobby was that um, and to write the book was that he was one of the few, the band. They were one of the few groups at the period that weren't pandering to that whole English onslaught that came across the, you know, the pond, the Atlantic. You know, I mean, every other American band all of a sudden just, just caved in and started emulating the Beatles or the Mersey sound or that. But Bobby was just adamant. He says, "No, I'm a Texan." You know, he and uh, he, he may he he did perform a couple of those songs live, but he certainly didn't. Uh, didn't record or write in that style. I mean, all his recorded mm-hmm. stuff is very much his own style, um, influenced by Buddy Holly, and that, that Tex-Mex style, that's the sort of sound that Ian, he sort of got onto, as, as did probably would have um, Buddy Holly if he hadn't died you know, a few years earlier. Um, it was right. a mixture of uh, you know, the Richie Valen sound, and, that, and maybe once again... People have said that was Bob Keane, but um, I don't think that was. Um, the whole Tex-Mex sound sort of started coming around about the time of his Letter Dance single, which was a huge success in Los Angeles, and um, that's got that La Bomba sort of riff through it, and that, the concept of that was was it was introduced into the song by his brother, Randy, you know. Um, so I think, you know, Bob Keane tends to take a lot of credit for a lot of things he didn't do, and um, I'm not speaking out of school there. I, I, the, the amount of books that I've, written and the amount of people I've come across that have dealt with poor old Bob they've all had very similar stories that uh, yeah he was he was he, he was his own man did things his way and it was only his way and but give him his due Bob Keane was very helpful for a lot of the um Chicano and the Latino the Latino Chicano and the the, the black musicians in Los Angeles he he did record a lot of those for a lot of other record people weren't interested in it because of racism or they weren't considered um, worthy of recording or that in the market wasn't there but Bob Keane he had, he had what they call an open door policy he'd basically record anybody that he felt could make him some money I guess to be really blunt but, uh, and that's one of the reasons why he, he signed up Bobby um, Bobby had been there before he'd come over in in, in, in 63 um, from, from he'd made a trip to Los Angeles in 63 had been and seen Bob simply because Bob um, had produced um, Richie Valens stuff, which which once again was another influence on, on Bobby's sound. And Bobby, you know, was, was enamoured by um, Richie as well. Um, and that's why he went to see Bob Keane. And Bob Keane, you know, took him in, listened to him, said, "Yeah, that's okay, but you know, I don't, I don't, I can't hear a hit record there. But go home again and um, and come back in a few months' time." And basically, that's what he did. And um, once he left um, te- uh, Texas um, and came to Los Angeles, his whole world changed, and uh, it was basically, in a way, a downward spiral to his death, um, unfortunately. Um, the reasons why he left um, El Paso, um, yeah, there were good and bad reasons. I mean, the, ma- the main reason is that he, you know, he, he climbed the mountain and got as high as he could there, and 
he needed to go go somewhere else to to, you know, to broaden his scope and to uh, to make uh, a name for himself other than just be a local hero. Um, I, there's also the problem too that you know he, he, they were a bunch of rowdy guys. I mean, you've got to bear in mind p- people paint a picture of Bobby as being like you know, squeaky clean and. and and they were all young kids, and but you know they were a rock and roll band. Yeah, you know, young kids given given free reign, you know, to 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 do basically what they could get away with in those days. And Bobby had his own, apart from his two record labels, and he he had a nightclub in uh, El Paso called the Rendezvous, and uh, he ran that for a successful. Well, how old was he? He would have been. Um, I think he was twenty three when he died. So he was. He started oh, yeah. his time. Um, probably when you know he, he, he's producing record company things and that all oh, was probably from when he was about 20, 19 or 20, yeah, without sort of going back and working out the dates. But yeah. A late, a he was very young, and, and that's young for, the, for that's young for 1983. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, a 20 year old today is you know a well seasoned veteran, but a 20 year old back in 1963 is probably like a 12 year old today. I don't know, you know. But, no, well, yeah, but, that, that, but think of it two record labels and a nightclub. Yeah, yeah. And he was twenty. He couldn't even drink in his own nightclub. Yeah, running his own nightclub. Yeah. He couldn't even drink in his own nightclub. Well, they didn't sell alcohol. It was a teen nightclub, nonetheless. It was. It was. Yeah, with the rendezvous, I played all through school vacation and on the weekends. I didn't play through the week. But through the week, he was he was performing at all the other places he could perform at, whether they were licensed or unlicensed places. You know, mm. wherever where, where there was a gig, Bobby was there. He played lots of places, not just in in, in uh, El Paso, but in the surrounding areas, you know, New Mexico. And uh, um, I don't think he ever... He, he never played across the border in Juarez. Um, I know he went there a lot because that's where Long John... Oh, was it Long John Hunter, I think? Um, Long John, anyway, he's a well-known guy from the, from, those, from that period. He, um, he had a a residency at the club in in Juarez, and um, you know all, all the rock and rollers would go across from guys in bands in in uh, El Paso would cross the border and uh, mm-hmm. hang out at the nightclub. Of course, you know no one worried about age. <laughs> I don't 
Another world we don't really want to know about because there's not much true. we can do about it, you know. No, it's, it's um, a shame. But, um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it was an eye-opener as you can well imagine for like 15 and 16 and 7 year old kids, sure. you know, who, which is what the age was when Bobby started going cross there. That you know, it, it was just wild, you know. And and he would get up on stage and because uh, he was initially initially a very good drummer. That's why he, in his early bands, when when the bands weren't Bobby Fuller and when he joined other bands, he was the drummer. It was later on that he progressed to being the guitarist, and he, he, I've got reports that he, yeah, you know, he would go across to this, um, you know, this uh, bar where where Long John was playing, and he'd get up and play drums with him. And then even later on, when he was actually um, fronting his own bands, he would he would still do the same and get up and play guitar with him. So, you know, so he he'd earned a bit of a reputation himself, you know, by that stage, and uh, the band had earned a reputation as as being a great band musically, and. Some of the members had earned reputations as being very, very wild, um, particularly, you know, good old um, Bobby's brother, Randy, because he was very much into sort of, uh, um, I guess you would call, you know, uh, fighting or fisticuffs or whatever you want to call them. Um, he was, uh, you know, given an opportunity, yeah, he would hit you rather than talk to you. I think I've been told. But I love you, Randy, out there, if you're out listening, I still love you. <laughs> But um, he was um, he was uh, he was pretty wild, you know. And I think he, the poor old Mister um, Mister um, Fuller had, had gotten that Lawson Lawson Fuller, or LS he was known as. Um, Lawson had got those boys out of a bit of a bit of trouble, and I think that maybe Lawson's handshakes had sort of worn their worn out their welcome in 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 El Paso, and uh-huh. it may well have been time for Bobby and Band to move on to bigger and better fortune and. Uh, to a to a, a larger town where perhaps their antics aren't so obvious, <laughs> and that larger town was was Los Angeles, which was the closest one. Yeah, it's still, well, you know that was the be all end all. By, by, yeah, by that stage, by 1964, Los Angeles was fast becoming the focal point of of the American music industry. Um, you know, New York had well and truly been that before, but uh, the focus was shifting. A lot of reasons for that. Um, but you know, LA was the you know was the was the centre. It was where the movie industry was, and television industry was, and uh, of course the music industry came later. Um, you know, major major music industry. Even the East Coast labels would eventually settle in Los Angeles, or certainly have offices out there. You know, um, but Bobby, you know, Bobby tried all the larger labels when he first uh, the times he's gone to Lo- gone to Los Angeles scouting for stuff. And of course, you know, it's the same old story. They're not interested. Um, and of course he came. He went back to Bob, and Bob said, "Yeah, no, I'll sign you up. Um, you know, we'll, um, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll create a label just for you, which is what you know, is said in a lot of papers and magazines and, and articles. Which, as I said, I don't think is the truth at all. But um, nonetheless, um, his first couple of singles didn't. You know, they they were popular. Um, I've got charting. You know, the char- they charts in like Las Vegas and Nevada and, and Portland and places like that." Didn't chart. They didn't chart on the major Los Angeles. His first record to chart on the major on a major Los Angeles label was Let Her Dance, which was the, which was one he wrote himself. Well, there she goes, another brand new love. 
yeah, the song that started out as a song called um, "Let's uh, Let's Keep Dancing" or "Keep Dancing" or something like that, or "Dance On" or uh-huh. one of those sort of titles. Um, right. And um, he, he, they decided to call it "Let Her Dance," and um, uh-huh. it was the one that really, to me, is by far the best song he ever did. Um, it was something original. It had that Tex-Mex sound. It really had his sound more so than, say, I Fought the Law, which is one everybody knows, because right. that was, as we all know, it was a, it was a cricket song, you know. Um, and, of course, once again, you've got the Buddy Holly thing now with the crickets, of course, you know, even though it was... Right. Old. I think Buddy... I'm not sure... I think Buddy did... Buddy may well have... No, I don't think Buddy did record um, a version of that. He, Buddy recorded a version of the follow-up to I Fought the Law, which was Love's Made a Fool of You. But he did do a version of that, but I don't think that was released. I'm not sure. I'm not a, I'm not a great Holly um, aficionado. I, I love his stuff, but I, as I said, I, you know, I unfortunately can't know everything about everything. <laughs> I know um, a little bit I, about uh, a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I, I have about everything Buddy Holly did. I'm going to have to go through this now and try and find yeah. something that fits. <laughs> I know I've got it all in my book about about you know what when all these songs were recorded and who recorded them and all that, but. Hmm. Um, the, yeah, the Bobby the Bobby Fuller Four book is a book that is. Let me think. I think it's four books ago, maybe five books ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it came out, I think, oh, 2008. Oh, might have uh-huh. been. Um, and then uh, that one sold out. And I I have subsequently rewritten it um, uh-huh. because when I first wrote the book, um, there wasn't a lot of information available. There's all there's a lot of information available, but a lot of stuff you couldn't rely on. The main, the main thing that was available was an art, was a very large article for Bomp magazine done by a, a lovely lady from um, New York called Miriam Linner. And Miriam's in the process of actually doing a book on Bobby Fuller now, with um, really? in, in collaboration with, uh, with with Randy. Um, we're all waiting for that, and we've been waiting for that for quite a long time. So, but mine was the first out. I mean, I, my, my first one came out in 2008. Um, sold out, and I've since since that one came out, I got a lot of response from a lot of people who were who were in the band, who were band you know, associates, let's say, um, and uh, fans and that. And, um, but yeah, yeah. So the so so the new book has has got quite a uh, certainly the last two chapters, which cover you know basically the, the, the events leading up to the death and the aftermath of the death and, and what, what may what may, may could have happened. That's that's changed somewhat in the new edition. All the early stuff, of course, doesn't change because that's that's written in stone. And I was lucky enough to be able to interview lots of lots of people involved because that's what I that's what I primarily like to do is is, is let the people who are there tell their story, tell the story. I wasn't there, so I'm not mm-hmm. going to sort of tell the story because I, I I'm only assuming stuff and, and 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 all that, and that's not right. So I try to interview as many people as I can and and. Let them tell the story in their in their first person um, quotes and that you know and tie it all together. So I, I'm the guy that ties the story together, not so much the guy that writes the story. The guy that people that write the story, the people who are there. Um, so I, I was fortunate enough to have interviewed quite a few people, a lot who aren't who are no longer with us, um, mm-hmm. particularly um, Jim Jim Reese. Um, I, I interviewed Jim way back in the early '80s, and of course Jim died sometime in the '80s, I think from memory, um, and. And also another thing that I yeah, that I look for is um, old interviews. Um, I always found, or I've always found that the, the older the interview, 
the more accurate it is. There's yeah. no hindsight, there's no changing of history and all that sort of stuff. And particularly in the Bobby Fuller story, that changing of history and hindsight views, it clouds, completely clouds the whole story 100%. Um, so hmm. I was fortunate enough that, that Miriam, in her article, had interviewed people that I'd also interviewed as well, plus other people I had in I hadn't interviewed, particularly um, Bob Bob Coon. So she interviewed him very early on. Here's two rare tracks from Bobby Fuller that he did back in 1962, and you could tell his love for Buddy Holly. These were done on a defunct label called Yucca. Hmm. They're called Guess We'll Fall in Love and You're in Love. Bobby Fuller. You're the one that I admire You're the one that I desire Heaven made you just for me So we can hide what must be Guess we'll fall in love Guess we'll fall in love Kiss me baby once tonight just to make our hearts feel right Can't you make your soul pursue All that I am giving you Guess we'll fall in love Guess we'll fall in love Come to me And take my heart Hug me baby I like your All I say in every prayer We could make a perfect love scene Then you fulfill all of my dreams Then we'll be in love Then we'll be in love
when you think with your heart instead of thinking with your head. And without a certain one, you think you'd rather be dead. Play it calm, play it cool. Now you're in a different school. You're way up, but you're no fool. It's amazing, and getting back to uh, to Bob King once again, um, I've got not hundreds, but you know, dozens of interviews with Bob King from from say from the time that were published in newspapers up until his death, um, where he said the same thing 15 different ways, completely different each time. So it's like you cannot, unfortunately, whether, it's, whether it, was, um, it, was, it was like a, that's what he wanted to do or he was changing the story to suit particular things at any one given time, I don't know. But I, I have to admit that you cannot, uh, or I certainly cannot take anything that he's ever said at face value, you've got to really have supportive evidence for every possible thing he's ever said about Bobby Fuller. Certainly uh-huh. about the events of the day, how the body was found, all that stuff. That is most of Bob's stuff is pure invention, and uh-huh. that's based. And I'm saying that based on the fact that I interviewed the people who were there, uh, who uh-huh. were there at the time the body was found, not 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour later when Bob Keen turned up. You know. Uh-huh. So, so that makes once again that all makes a big difference to what actually may well have happened, um, because you know there's there's so much clouded um, information and so many erroneous assumptions and suggestions. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've heard the fact that he swallowed the gasoline and he didn't die of swallowing the gasoline. He died from the fumes. You can't, you basically can't swallow gasoline. You automatically bring it up. You know, it's you know the. the I, the famous uh, gasoline cocktail. I've seen that in print. I don't know how many times. You know, Bobby swallowed uh-huh. and his gasoline. He never, he never swallowed the gasoline. Um, there was no gasoline in his stomach at the autopsy. I've got a full copy of the of the autopsy report. Um, there's no, absolutely no, no, um, no gasoline in his stomach. There was stuff in his lungs because he's inhaled the fumes. Um, but would the would they would they have killed him? Most definitely. That was that was um, in my book. He died because of the inhalation of gasoline. That, that, is the, that is the cause of death on the death certificate, in, inhalation of gasoline. That means he's breathed the fumes in and he's had a reaction. Now, the thing is, and of course this is something that probably no one, even, no one else knows, so you're getting a first here, maybe one of two firsts, but um, people, Bobby, Bobby suffered from um, asthma. Uh-huh. It's something that, I mean, it's, it's been mentioned occasionally, just very occasionally. And for some strange reason, it's not mentioned on the, on the autopsy report that the, fa- the fact that he suffered 
from asthma. And, we, and mm. it wasn't just a mild case of asthma. Having spoken to people who were, the, you know, who were with him, Rick Stone, the tour manager and people like that, he had to leave the clubs that he played in to get the fresh air, otherwise he perhaps would have collapsed. Mm. So, you know, because you know, by the time he died, he's, he, he, was, he was just playing clubs. I mean, he was recording and playing. But that was it. That's all there was in those days was clubs, basically. And, you know, and the clubs had smoking. Every club had smoking. It was just like right. a haze, you know. And, and so, so he, he, he would spend hours at night in, in clubs, and he would have to get out to get fresh air. Um, now, somebody who suffers from asthma and, you know, not so much a virulent form of it, but, but you know, more than your average asthma sufferer, to be exposed to gasoline fumes in a confined space, You'd be dead within ten minutes, um, I, and um, I've had that synopsis given to me by um, well, well, my my personal physician. I, I took the autopsy up to him and said, "Look, you know, because he, you know, being being a, a, an older gentleman of uh, Asian persuasion, he didn't really he didn't have any idea who Bobby was. I mean, to be truly honest, not too many people in Australia do know who Bobby Fuller is. Sure. But um, sure. anyway, so I was able to present this to him and, 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 and say, look, can you tell me what you think was the cause of death? And he read everything, you know, all the technical terms and all the stuff and explained everything to me. And, he's, and he actually said to me, did this man suffer from asthma? That's, he, somehow he perceived that by, by the condition of the lungs, blah, blah, and all that, which is all described in extensive detail. In, 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 in now I'm going to ask you a big, the question then. Yes. But the point is, this this boy absolutely was from from what you're saying, being able to play all these instruments and do all the things. A pretty smart fella. How in the world did this did he did this uh, situation come about? And what about all the things about people thinking that he had been uh, killed by a mobster in some respect? How did this all work into that? Uh, well, yeah, okay, I can explain that quite well easily, but might be a bit long-winded, as most of my things usually are, as you probably realise. Um, right. Okay. Um, yeah, to have been put in a situation, knowing that he suffered from asthma himself, obviously, you know, he would be sure. he would be very very sort of cautious of of being put in a situation where something like that may well happen. So you know straight away. I mean that it wasn't, number one, it wasn't suicide. I mean, that was, the initial mode of death was suicide. That was, that was the initial coroner's report, rough report, uh, was suicide. And, um, you, and the, the question remains is, why would anybody even consider that? I mean, of all the ways to commit suicide, and knowing he's an asthmatic, why would he choose the most painful and most horrible way to do it? I mean, put a bullet to your head, take an overdose of pills, jump off the cliff, do anything. But, but to actually take your own life by uh, inhaling gasoline, knowing that you're an asthmatic, I think it's just beyond reality, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, that was all sort of subsequently um, debunked, um, although it still persists. I mean, you still find it that he committed suicide. But um, the fact of the matter was that... Um, he didn't commit suicide. You don't commit suicide that way. The, the major thing to uh, forgetting about the asthma um, and jumping ahead a little bit, um, the, the main reason he didn't commit suicide was 
that car that he was found in was there one minute and not there the next. It was not there, it was not there initially, then all of a sudden it turned up with his dead body in it. And as everybody knows, dead bodies don't drive cars. Mm-hmm. So that's straight away, that, that alleviates the fact that um, there was no such thing as um, suicide. And um, the suicide verdict was overturned subsequently to that, primarily by the efforts of Bob Keane and his partner Larry Noons, both of whom are now dead. Um, and the reason that has been put forward, although I've never seen any documentary evidence of this, but I've got a lot of first-person quotes from people who have, or say they have, was that there was an insurance policy on Bobby, um, and insurance policies don't pay out in suicide. So straight away, right. Bob Keane and his partner had to have that um, had to have that death certificate changed, and of course, they were the two people who had it changed. So whether there was a payout, that, that's, that's open to conjecture. People say there was, people say there wasn't. Bob Keane certainly says there wasn't any, um, and he says it was all Larry Noons, you know, and of course, no one wanted to talk to Larry Noons because Larry Noons had friends that had violin cases, if you can take my drift. Yes, um, I get and, you. And, um, yeah, and um, so um, that's why, why, the, why the verdict was initially suicide. Um, there was some comment that his mother may well have made that was was reported in the newspaper saying that he was depressed. And, of course, they jumped on that, and all of a sudden, you know, the next thing you know, he's, he's, he's killed himself. Um, Keane vehemently denied that at, at the funeral, his, his oratory at the funeral sort of basically says, no, he didn't, no, Bobby was happy and Gabrielle happy. He'd seen him the day before. There was no, no one, none of his close associates said he was depressed. You know, they said, oh, the band was breaking up. Yeah, the band was breaking up. But, that, but yeah, Bobby wanted that to break up. He, 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 he wanted to get out of the situation he was in. And, and the, the, the band collapsing or breaking up was the best thing that could have really happened, not the, not, not the worst thing. You know, that was mainly breaking up because, you know, the drummer wanted to go back home to Texas. Um, uh, uh, Jim, Jim Reese, the lead guitarist, was um, being drafted. And uh, so that left basically Bobby and Randy, you know, um, and, and, and Bobby had had enough of, of Bob Keen and Delphi Records. Uh, uh, sorry, Mustang Records, which is the new Delphi. Uh, and this was the opportunity for him to break free in a way, and, uh, and that, that has been put forward as one of the reasons why he ended up you know, being found dead in his cars, because... Mm. People didn't want him to break free. Um, but um, the reasons why he was killed, uh, I mean, I, I'm adamant that he was murdered. He was murdered. Um, he, he, um, there may not have been an overt, um, straight off the bat, to kill him. Like, he may have been threatened and it went too far. I don't think, you know, there's, there's two schools of thought, and we don't know which one it was. But he was killed in the process of one or the other. So that was it. He was he was murdered to, to make it a lot simpler. As I think, as the front of my book says, uh, um, if I can uh, just grab a copy of it, and my heading of my first book says, uh, um, from, uh, says uh, El, uh, te- Texas bred him, El Paso honed him, California drew him, and Hollywood killed him. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, if he hadn't gone, if he had not gone to Los Angeles, he'd still be alive today. There's no doubt in my mind about that. It was definitely Hollywood that killed him and the people that he associated with. Because you've got to bear in mind that Bobby's a, a young kid, 20 years old, 20, 22, 23 by this stage, from Texas, you know, from, from El Paso, which was like really a, excuse, apologies to anybody from El Paso, it was a hit town, you know, and he's, 
he's a young kid going to the big smoke, you know, the, you know Los Angeles, you know. Um, you know, it's like all those poor little kids that, you know, that turn up at bus stations and you've got that predator there waiting for them. That's basically what it was with Bobby. And he, he just, although he was wise and, and clever and everything else, I, he just didn't understand, I don't think, um, how that whole Hollywood thing operated. And that was like, that, it was a quagmire. Um, and having written quite a, well, most of my books are all about stuff, some sort of aspect of Los Angeles music, surf, hot rod, beach party movies. I mean, yeah, it, it, it was a horrible underbelly. Uh, it was a vortex that would suck you in and you'd never come out the same. And unfortunately, um, I think Bobby probably saw the best in everybody. And unfortunately, the people he hooked up with were not the best of everybody and he suffered the consequences of it. Now, why he was killed, um, there are quite a few theories of that. Um, I, I can expose a few, uh, it will expose a few of those and, and expose for that matter. Um, I think, me, me, pers me personally, I think it all had to do with Mustang Records. That label, there was something fishy about that label from day one till day end. Um, here's a label that survived for 18 months with a couple of offshoots, Bronco and a couple of other ones that didn't even do as well as the other two. Um, and... It, it put out like, I don't know, 30 or 40 releases. And you can't even find them today. You cannot, eBay, you can't even find the early Bobby Fuller singles on Mustang. They're as scarce as hen's teeth. Now, that tells you something. That tells you that there just wasn't that many pressed up and given out. And you've got to think, if a record company ain't pressing records up and, and distributing them, what are they doing? Um, and, um, I mean, when, when you look at the, the list of artists on, on Mustang, and my first book's about was about Bobby Fuller and Mustang Records. The second book's all about Bobby Fuller, so there's a little bit of a, to make the book a lot smaller, <laughs> a, a lot thinner and cheaper to post, I excised all the stuff out that was about Mustang and, and, and mm -hmm. the relevant stuff in. But anyway, so if you look at all the artists, there were just no hits. The only hits on Mustang, major hits, and minor hits for that matter, were Bobby Fuller, and they weren't that many. They, you know, Los Angeles, you had... Let Her Dance, which is a big one in Los Angeles, just didn't break nationally or internationally. Then you had um, uh, the next the next chart hit, basically, was was I Fought the Law, and then with the follow-up, um, Love's Made a Fool of You, and then a minor placing with his last record, The Magic Touch. Um, so, and, you know, a record label with offices on Selma, um, you know, in the middle, of, in the heart of Hollywood, you know, with, with Bob Keane's lifestyle and the people he employed and all that, that had to be paid for somehow. And this is from a company that had lost all its money on its previous on its previous labels like Delphi and 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 Keane's other sort of Donner and all those little little piddly labels that he had associated with them. I mean, I, I just cannot fathom what was going on at 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 Mustang. You can fix sort of sort of put two and two together and read between the lines and. And think maybe it was a money laundering thing. I mean, I, I, that's a possibility um, because I, just, I, I, I can't see it being a viable record label. It just wasn't making any money. Um, mm -hmm. And also, what happened to what, what money it did make with um, with I Fought the Law, which is where it made all its money. Right. Um, where did that all go? I mean, I've, I've got reports that at at Bobby's funeral, Bob Keane came up to his father, Lawson Fuller. And, and gave him an invoice for seven thousand dollars for money's owed. I mean, you know, 
It's like, well, Don't yeah, buy. money's owed, yeah. okay, but what happened to all the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of dollars for I fought the law? The goddamn thing was a big hit here. It was a big hit in England. It was a big, huge hit in America. The album, the album didn't do too well, unfortunately, um, but it was, still would have sold a fair amount of copies. It's still reasonably common. Um, so you've got to wonder what was going on there and what was what was going on there, if by chance there was something else going on there, was that what got Bobby killed? I mean, did he stumble across something that he should not have been party to or a witness of? And this all gets back to another little scenario too that, that um, Bobby always maintained and the group members maintained that Bobby was able to go back into the studio at night and tweak the things and tinker with things that Bob Keane had, had been fooling with all day. Because Bobby and Keane, Bobby and Bob, Bob Keane and Bobby Fuller never saw eye to eye as producers. Bobby was a producer. Bob Keane was a producer. So you had two producers trying to produce the record. And of course, Bob putting out, well, so, probably saying it's, it's my money. Um, as it turned out, it was Bobby's money because that was where the $7,000 came from. Um, right. Yeah, that you, know, you know, all that was being built <laughs> against Bobby, so it wasn't Bobby's money. It, was, it wasn't Bob Keane's money; it was Bobby's money. Anyway, um, so yeah, so it, it always seemed to go Bob Keane's way. And of course, what what people said and people I've interviewed said that he would go in at night and, and you know, remix it, yeah, you know, tweak it back to him because it was all stereo. And um, but Bob Keane was adamant till the day he died that Bob Bobby never had a key to the offices. Um, <laughs> To, to the officers to get in and to do the alarm system and all that. But the point of the matter is, I mean, there's any number of ways anybody could have got a key, <laughs> you know. And the classic of all classics is the story about I Fought the Law, which right. has the, the two versions. Like, there's the version that it, that's the hit version, the mono one, and, of course, there's the stereo one that has the four-letter word, you know, in it. And that four-letter word, can only have been added after the fact. It could not have been added while Keane was there because he would not have allowed it. I mean, Keane was very straight. I mean, straighter, you know, he was as straight as they come, you know. Um, so the fact that that four-letter word is in I Fought the Law, um, that's, you know, Bobby says, good fun in the... Um, I miss my baby when it was fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to say it, but, you know, you, guys, you know where I'm going. Um, yes. Yeah, so the only reason that could possibly have happened, and it's there, you, it's quite audible, was the fact that Bobby had gone in with keys. So. so if Bobby had keys and had gone in one night, so the scenario could very well have been Bobby was going in one night to do some remixing or to do some tweaking or to add a guitar part or something, because he was hands-on. The only thing Bobby Fuller was was hands-on. Um, and he's, he's gone in there, May, maybe he was already in there, the next thing you know, he hears the door opening, and yeah, you don't know what could have been going on in that place. So that could have very well have led to his demise later on. Um, the, and that involves the mob to an extent. Uh -huh. So both reasons why he was murdered involved the mob, to, to the best of my See, he got a phone call in the morning, and he said, Mom, I'll be back. I won't be going too long. He took off. Then Bobby left the building shortly thereafter. Witnesses have said that they saw a white car driving up and down the streets kind of quickly around 4 in the morning. Around 5 o'clock that evening, Bobby's worried mother, Lorraine, noticed that her car mysteriously reappeared. And she walked over to it and opened the door and was just hit by 
the stench of gasoline. Cop came up, made some remark about another rock and roller ODing and it was obvious suicide. On July 18, 1966, the body of rising rock and roll star, 23-year-old Bobby Fuller was found inside his mother's Oldsmobile. Bobby was bruised and beaten and his clothing was soaked with gasoline. Yet despite the obvious signs of foul play, LAPD investigators insisted Bobby's death was a suicide. Delphi Records President Bob Keane disagrees. The cop came up, opened the door, and there was an empty can of gas there, a big can. He took that and threw it in the dumpster. At that point, I said, uh, hey, that's evidence. How do we know that uh, he wasn't killed or murdered or something like that? For some reason, the cops decided it was an open and shut case. The sloppy police work enraged Bobby's longtime friend, Charlene Novak. And I said, how's your investigation going? And they said, well, you know, it's suicide. And I said, no, it wasn't. He was on the verge of major success, but I would never believe that he took his own life. This was not a man who just suddenly decided my life is not worth living. I'm going to go and kill myself. He didn't have a suicidal bone in his body. He was telling me how much he was looking forward to the future. He had bruises on his body and that he had scratch marks and scrapes on his arms like he had been dragged on asphalt or gravel well it sure sounds like bobby was roughed up but still there was a theory that the young musician died from a drug trip gone bad that day rather before before he died he told me that they were going to go to a party that night and take lsd with a lot of high-class people bobby was supposed to go to a uh, an LSD party in Malibu. This was 1966. LSD was legal still for at least the first couple of months of the year, and everybody was talking about it. Bobby was a very high-strung young man, and I doubt whether he could handle LSD. It's very possible that he had a bad trip, uh, somehow or other fell off a cliff, or who knows what happened. There's only one problem with this explanation. The medical examiner found no traces of mind-altering substances in his bloodstream. There was no indication of drugs. They ran a number of uh, blood tests for that, um, which cast some doubt on the theory that he was at a wild LSD party. The party didn't actually happen. Bobby was still at his apartment building at about 3, 3 o'clock in the morning on the 18th, and still in his just hanging around the house clothes. He hadn't gotten dressed up to go out anywhere. Bobby was in a fine mood and was on his way to meet a girl. He's been linked with a woman by the name of Melody, who some say was his girlfriend, some say was just a friend, and, uh, and many think had something to do with his uh, eventual demise. My relationship with Bobby primarily was to watch him and talk to him. I was like the go-between to talk to Bobby and see what was on his mind, what bothered him and stuff like that. The mob was, was certainly present in the music industry in Los Angeles in the 60s. There are rumors that Melody was a call girl, and as well as rumors that she was the girlfriend of a prominent local mob figure and club owner. Homicide detectives questioned me about stuff, but all they were interested in was, were drugs. And I started to get angry with him, and I kept saying, he was not a suicide, why don't you find out? And Larry was my best friend. He was the money behind the record company that Bobby worked for. Yeah, there was a lot of 
aeola going on. One of the major stations that played music, this guy had complete control of what, the rec what records were going to be played. But Larry was paying about 150 or 200 dollars a week to promote. I fought the law. I think uh, they spent a lot of money on us. We, you know, there were there was a lot of money owed because of the the, produ the you know the producing of everything and publicity. Wherever the money was going, Fuller didn't feel he was seeing his fair share. You know, I really don't know how much money they were making because I wouldn't get any of it. They put. Well, I, what I call a rough-up contract out, you know, go and rough this kid up so we can put the fear of God into this guy who owes me money. But they overdid it. They went too far. But Randy Fuller doesn't think there was anything accidental about his brother Bobby's death. It was either a freak thing or somebody set him up with that phone call. I can't think of any other reason why somebody called him at 2 in the morning and he left. Unless it was something like I run out of gas, and that, to me that's where that gas can come into the picture. His mom called me Sunday to see if he had spent the night at my house, and I said I hadn't spoken to him. He met somebody obviously down there. It wasn't me. Happens when the body, when you die and the body starts to go, the blood starts to settle in the lowest positions and all that, and that after a while that starts to turn purple. That is probably, and in my opinion, that is what everybody saw. They saw the model, the modelness. You know, his face was like because it was on an angle and all that. That part of his face was sort of going bluish purple. Well, that, that's not bruising from being beaten. That's bruising from particular hemorrhages caused by lividity and all that. And that's mm -hmm. clearly what's noted on the um, on the uh, the coroner's report is that yeah, the lividity wow. and all that. You know, so that to me explains the bruising aspect of him being beaten, and I don't think he was beaten. He maybe did on the head once, went unconscious, we don't know that. That's that's up in the air, but um, wow. being beaten and dragged and, and thumped and all that sort of stuff would, you know. Well, I just know that there was an uh, insurance policy. They claim there wasn't. Uh, but I remember that they, there was, I even think there was one on the rest of the band for something like $100,000 each or something. But Bobby was something like 800000 and the beneficiary of the policy was none other than Bobby's financier and Delphi Records partner, Larry Noon. He was the backer. So maybe uh, anything that pertained to money was all in Larry's name. Bobby was killed as a way of uh, recouping some of the money that was lost, trying to promote the magic touch. Yeah, but to collect on the insurance policy, Bobby's death could not be ruled a suicide. So guess what? Two months later, the L.A. County coroner reclassified the cause of Fuller's death. It was now ruled an accident due to asphyxiation from the inhalation of gasoline fumes. Now Keen's silent partner, Larry Noon, could collect on the policy.
tonight. That's yeah, yeah. You, you, that'll give you an, an insight to the Eddie Nash character. Eddie Nash's partner was a guy called Dominic Lucci, who was a who was a East Coast mobster guy as well. I mean, you know, um, I'm fine. I'm 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 living in Australia. I don't know about you poor guys. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I lived I lived in New York City most of my life, so uh, I'm very familiar with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought I could pick a bit of a New York accent there, but um, very little. Um, yeah. Bit. So, so whether now whether the girl who was known as Melody, um, whether whether her boyfriend was Eddie Nash, or whether it was Dominic Lucci or someone else, um, we don't know. Um, she's been interviewed, and she she tends to mention a fair bit about Larry Noons. She may well have been Larry Noons' girlfriend. Um, you know, Larry Noons was her mentor and everything else, and she actually says she works for, worked for Larry Noons. And so you've got this, you have got this connection. There's, there's, there's no doubt there's this connection. Um, and if Bobby, now Bobby, from, from what, all the people I interviewed, the Bobby connection with the girl, she wasn't necessarily his girlfriend. She was just some female acquaintance. Now, whether uh-huh. he was having an affair with her or whether she... She just says, no, we weren't having an affair. We, I was his sort of big sister sort of thing that she came to and, and, and we've spent many nights together just talking and all that. Well, we don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, bearing in mind that, you know, Melody was a um, well-known uh, call girl, so you know that that part's involved in it. But, um, now, she was the girlfriend of, of a mobster, whoever it was, and you're to be going out with her, whether you are or not, uh-huh. there's a bit of safe phasing, a safe, a face saving needs to be done. And, right, right. You know, in clinical terms, we know what that would be. I've got to save my reputation, take him out, and that's possibly what happened. I mean, they may have gone to, gone to, gone to warn him off. Um, things got a little bit out of hand, and he ended up dying. I mean, I have got a report that. The guy that whacked him, the mob guy that was given the job of whacking Bobby, or who inadvertently whacked him, was subsequently whacked himself. Now that's another supposition, uh-huh. you know, that's been going around. So, but the whole the whole thing here is that Bobby's found dead in his car, right, from inhalation right. of gasoline. Now. There's lots of stuff on the web and in other books and all other things about him being beaten and dragged and all that. There's not any sign of that on the autopsy. There's no, the autopsy, the body, the body has not got any grazes on it. It hasn't got any bruises as such. You know, um, there, I think from memory, just got to top of my head, there was a, a, a note on it about a, a little mark on his head, um, which may... Um, my my medical person who looked at it, you know, was was not convinced that that was a, that was severe enough to have knocked him unconscious. It could very well have been. If he was knocked unconscious, left in that car, doused in gasoline, that that was a death sentence straight off the bat. Now whether that was intentional wow. or not, that was a death sentence because he was going to die. The person may not have known he suffered from 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 um, asthma, but then again, why douse the body in? Wouldn't matter. You know, uh, wouldn't matter after a while. That's exactly right. And you want to bear in mind, yeah. the day that found that, that, that found his body, I think the, temp- the ambient temperature outside in, in, in North Hollywood was about 98, 99, 100 or something like that, right? This car had all the windows lo- locked up, so you know that it, the temperature in that would have probably, what, 140? 
I don't know. Um, Unless you know, it was air conditioning, was I, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, but um, the body, as as delineated in the autopsy report, does not show any signs of being beaten. Everybody, other than a few people, report that when they took the body out of the car, he was covered in bruises, he had a cut lip, he had... He had his, to- his shirt was torn and all that sort of stuff. His shirt may well have been torn. But there was no, there's no, absolutely no evidence on the autopsy report to, to indicate that he was beaten in any way. Um, there was other reports that he was dragged, that the, the, the heels of his the scuffs he was wearing, that, you know, he's, I think he was wearing his mother's uh, house slippers at the time, you know, um, that they were mm-hmm. scuffed. Um, that, that, could have been, that could have indicated he was dragged. Uh, I did read something once that there was like his elbows were grazed because they were, you know, but no, nah, there's no nothing like that on the report. Now yeah. the problem here is eyewitnesses, which having you know, been a connoisseur of a lot of crime shows, mostly English, I must I must admit, um, that eyewitnesses are the worst possible <laughs> form of witness you ever want because everybody sees something differently. Um, um, now the people who got there on the scene, the first people who discover Bobby's body. Were basically, was basically his mother. She'd come down to check the mail and saw the car that had been missing. So you've got to bear in mind, Bobby had been missing from since 3 a.m. on the Monday morning until his body was found around about 5 o'clock on the Monday afternoon. So that's, mm-hmm. that's 14 hours. I mean, you know, that's, that's strange. I mean, to me, the explanation of his death is the best explanation for the missing 14 hours. Um, but anyway, um, so... What what happened was, uh, was that yeah, Bobby had made plans, or there'd been some sort of plans made that he was going to meet up with a couple of um, Texas buddies, um, Ty Ty Grimes and Mike Sicarelli, who you know Texas musicians who were in Los Angeles playing in bands, and there was some talk about them maybe joining Bobby's new band or backing band or whatever. So they rocked up at Bobby's place to see him. Now they were were unaware he'd be missing all day, so they pull up. In the parking lot, well, it wasn't a parking lot. It was just a, it was just a vacant lot next door to the to the apartment block, which is now a park in in, in North Hollywood. Um, and it, it, so they would park people would park in the vacant lot rather than you know, drive down under the under the building. Which, if you look at all those TV shows about Bobby's death, they all show the car being in the parking lot of the of the um, units of, of the apartment block. I mean, that's all just fictitious. Um, anyway, so the car, so they pull up, park their car in the in the vacant lot next door, get out of their car, walk up to Bobby's apartment, which I think was on the third floor. He's sharing it with his mother at the time. His mother, well, his mother was staying with him at the time, and he was sharing it with um, his mom. His brother was brother who was, wasn't always there, and um, the road manager Rick Stone. So so while while uh, Mike and Ty are walking up the front, Mrs. Fuller is walking down the back stairs to check the mailbox. So by, by the time she gets to the mailbox, she sees her car, because it's her car that Bobby's found in, because Bobby didn't have his own car. It's her car. She, find, she sees her car parked next to another car, which has got Texas plates on it, apparently, you know, which is Ty Grimes and Mike Sorelli's car. Um, so she wanders over, pulls open the door, and there's Bobby lying dead on the, on the thing. Now, just at much the same time, Mike and Ty are coming back down again because no one's answering the door and see Bobby's car there. So that car, and, and I've confirmed this, I don't know how many times with this, 
you know, the poor Texans, I've, I quizzed them and quizzed them and quizzed them. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yep, they were 100% adamant. That car was not there when they pulled up. And within two or three minutes, maybe, four, you know, whatever took time to walk up and walk back again, um, that car was parked next to there with Bobby's dead body in it. Now, that's, that's, now that's, a weird, that's another weird thing about this whole scenario. Why, that, why, would you, you, why would you even do that? Why would, why would you kill the guy inadvertently or, or purposely, then drive the car back, park it next to where, you know, where his apartment is? That, that, that doesn't even make any sort of sense, even for the mob. You know? But anyway, um, so, so Ty and, and, and Mike see the body first, or second. Then by that time, uh, Rick Stone, who to me is the, mo- is the most reliable witness of everybody, because, you know, he, he was the road manager. He, he knew what Bobby was like. He, he lived there. He saw it all happening. He wasn't a musician. So that made a difference in so much as, you know, he, was, he, he wasn't um, confused. or not confused, but he wasn't sort of... He wasn't um, under the influence. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Well, not so much that, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the road guy. His job was to make sure everything happened properly. So, that, that's, so, like, so observing things and making sure that was his job. You know, when you went to clubs, that was Rick's job was to make sure that you didn't piss any, or if you didn't, you didn't, you know, you didn't, didn't you. disturb anybody in the club that might cause ramifications, you know, things like that, you know, which is much the same sort of role that uh, Dickie Dodd had with the Standells at PJs, who told me that it was his job to make sure that they didn't tread on any toes and be found in a car <laughs> later on. Um, anyway, so, um, but, um, so, yeah, so Rick sees the body, by that stage, um, um, the other two guys, Dalton and Dalton Powell, the drummer and um, the lead guitarist, uh, he they lived at the back of the building, so they all sort of fronted up, you know, within 10, 15 minutes of the body being found. So they're all the, they're the only people who really saw the body firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, Randy, he came, he was notified. By the time he got there, the police were already there. By the time Bob Keen was there, the body was out of the car. So anything Bob says about seeing the body didn't happen, <laughs> you know. Okay. So, so you know, and, and various other people have described the, the body as being bruised and battered. Now, this all is perhaps how the body may well have seemed at the time because the body was already in rigour and it wouldn't have taken the body to go to go into rigour very long considering the conditions of, the, you know, the heat and all that. that you know, people say three hours, but no. Nah. I think I think I consulted a, uh, a forensic psychologist or forensic somebody, and um, they said no, it'd be less than an hour, way less than that, you know. Um, but um, so, but what happens is when the body, when you die and the body starts to go, the blood starts to settle in the lowest positions and all that, and that after a while that starts to turn purple. That is probably, and in my opinion, that is what everybody saw. They saw the model, the modelness. You know, his face was like, because it was on an angle and all that, that part of his face was sort of going bluish purple. Well, that, that's mm-hmm. not bruising from being beaten. That's bruising from particular hemorrhages caused by lividity and all that. And that's mm-hmm. clearly what's noted on the, um, on the, uh, the coroner's report, is that, you know, the lividity wow. and all that, you know. So that, to me, explains the bruising aspect of him being beaten. And I don't think he was beaten. He may be hit on the head once, went unconscious. We don't know that. That's that's up in the air stuff. Would you know? Um, there's Either no evidence of him being beaten whatsoever. I got to say this. Uh, this the hour has gone by so fast. I am absolutely floored by by the amount of knowledge you have 
It's like 15 minutes to me. I, yeah, it's you. Seven, yeah, and especially when you yeah. get me talking, you can't, you can't keep me quiet. That's right. That's the way I like it. Thank you, Stephen, so much. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. So there you have it. From all different sources, from all different perspectives, now we still don't know what really happened, and we probably never will, except we lost a great talent, as you can see. Here are some more great examples of Bobby Fuller and the Bobby Fuller Four. think throughout this show I think you've heard the sounds of Bobby Fuller and how much influence Buddy Holly had on his career as short as it was interesting that both guys had very short careers and both ended very tragically well that's about it for tonight's old-time rock and roll I know it's been a kind of different type show and uh, I hope it wasn't too dismal and sad for you but you know I, I I just been trying to do this and find out more for so many years I figured I'd give you a chance to learn a little bit along with me for everybody here at old time rock and roll this is Lee Douglas we're going to end with uh, an instrumental that Bobby Fuller did and it's called Thunder Reef Again, for everybody here at Old Time Rock and Roll, this is Lee Douglas. That is a wrap.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.